0: We have with us today a former double winter Olympic snowboarder hailing from my neck of the woods uh, up in the northeast of Scotland. Um, representing Team GB in the Half His career has started, I think, around at the age of nine, um, competed at World Junior Champs, European Open, and multiple World Cups and lots of competitions alike. Um, Around about the age of 16, he was promoted to the British snowboarding team, competing at his first World Cup. Narrowly missing out on the Turin Olympic qualification in 2006, he went on to aim making the Vancouver 2010 Winter Olympics. Um, Whilst he is classed as a half-pipe specialist, he has also competed in the slope style and big air disciplines. Um, He is one of GB's finest snowboarders, and now as a businessman running and operating his own public gym, The Unit, I'd very excitedly like to introduce Ben Kilner to the Honest Athlete podcast.
1: Lovely. Thank you for that uh, lovely intro.
2: (laughs) No worries. Transcript that, Ben, and get on your LinkedIn, I think.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. Well, uh, yeah, I I don't have a LinkedIn, but uh, yeah, I should get Hannah to write it, shouldn't I? (laughs) 100%
2: just get it for that don't you ever use it don't do anything with it but just put Hannah Miley once said there you go
1: Oh, brilliant
2: thanks for coming on Ben it's brilliant to have you on and it's just cool to have a snowboarder on
1: oh thank you yeah no it's great to do stuff like this because um it also gives me sort of the opportunity to sort of remember the past as well and when they get asked questions so Yeah, no, thank you.
2: Now, my first question I always like to ask the guests is, how do you get into your sport? And obviously, snowboarding isn't something that you do with school once a week. So how did that start? What made you get into the sport?
1: Yeah, well, I think, I don't know if you remember when you were a child, you seemed to have a lot more white winters uh, in Scotland. Um, And I think it got to the point where uh, our schools were closed so often that. Everyone went sledging at their local sort of hill or golf course. For me, it was um, it was honestly it was about three hundred meter walk to the the third hole at my local golf course, and that's kind of where I saw the first ever snowboarder. Um, and I think I I'd taken my sledge, so I, w- I was just trying to stand up on my sledge to start with, and then uh, my mum and dad bought me some snowboard lessons um, up in Glen Chee. and that's kind of where it all took off. I was just that annoying kid that pestered my parents to take me up to the hills almost every weekend then from that point.
0: Certainly think I can even remember even when I was younger standing on the snow I'm uh, sorry, standing on a sledge, not quite replicating snowboard, but just being the rebel kid of who could stay on the longest or stay standing. Never <laughs> my forte. Prefer when the snow was more in liquid form than in the sort of snow frosty form. Um, so you were quite young when you started in snowboarding. And I guess I always kind of imagine snowboarding seems quite a dangerous sport. But as a youngster, you had no fear. Was that pretty much the same for you throughout your whole career? Was there any point that you think snowboarding is quite impactful, uh, both physically as well? Um, was there any fears or worries, I guess, from you or your parents taking up snowboarding?
1: Yeah, I suppose... When you, I mean, when we all, when we're all young, we are all fear, fearless because we've not yet learned about injuring ourselves or hurting ourselves. We don't really know what pain is. Um, so I think sometimes when you start a, a career in extreme sports, it really depends how like how far into how many years you go by without injuring yourself properly to determine whether you actually start getting a few little, little fears. Um, and I think to start with, I went without injury for quite a while, and then I remember getting like my first ever concussion um and and I just remember like, oh my God, like if if you fall, you can really hurt yourself. um And I suppose I used to just be that little kid that sort of fell over, got up on his feet, carried on, and then suddenly, when I got a little bit bigger, a little bit heavier. Um, things gravity was sort of pulling me towards earth that little bit harder um, <laughs> and I think the the sort of fear does kick in but I think you analyze things that little bit differently you stop just throwing yourself upside down and hoping you land on your feet you, you actually calculate things a little bit more
0: mathematical kind of bit that kind of comes into it then if you're having to calculate or
1: yeah so I suppose like the the thing is the higher you go, the slower you've got to rotate. So it's normally—I'm uh, sure there's some equation out there somewhere—but um, but really, the the smaller you go, the quicker you have to rotate. So you had to really figure out your speed on a lot of things when you're going off a jump. Um, whether the jump was bigger, that meant you had to slow like slow down your rotation more. So that's where. You had to do all this without actually realizing it. It's more of a subconscious thing. It's okay. Let's go and hit the the twenty meter jump. Um, that means that we've got to to really like slow everything quite down in comparison to a two meter jump, where you have to spin like a I don't know like a, a one of the freestyle skiers. Um, so the aerials, sorry. So yeah, it it's it. I suppose the fear factor for things like that. Comes into play. You just have to be a bit smarter.
2: When I was reading up about you, Ben, a bit more, you compete in the men's half That was your main event. Am I right?
1: Yes. Yeah. That's so right. that's
2: like Hannah Miley's 400 medley, my 100 backstroke. But you also it said you also competed in slope style and big air disciplines. Yes. How does that work? So do you just learn to snowboard? And like in swimming, you, you progress and your main event sort of comes to you and you just... Suppose, yeah, oh,
1: quite I suppose, like, this will probably be similar to you guys, but you, you've got to... Uh, I mean, we've all got that one discipline that we really do well in and we focus that a little bit more energy on because that would potentially get us further uh, in the career, for example, or, or get, give us a medal hope in that particular discipline... So I didn't want to spread myself too thin. And what you'll find is the, a lot of the snowboarders are either slope-style big air or they're half-pipe only. Um, it's very rare that you get a snowboarder that does both half-pipe and slope-style and big air. But I think they both complement each other. Um, it's kind of like if you just focus on front crawl, for example, it well will help with one part of the medley, um, but it doesn't. It, it, it you're better to almost in the medley. I suppose it's better to be like the better at, at everything individually. Um, if this makes sense, <laughs> jack of all trades almost. Um, but so for me, it was kind of like I couldn't spread myself thin. I couldn't be jack of all trades. I had to be the sort of master of one um which was half pipe so that that's that's quite common in snowboarding and skiing like freestyle skiing um you tend to find it's very rare that we're 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 very good at both at olympic level
0: so for those listening who might be coming into this not having much knowledge about snowboarding could you give us a like maybe a brief description on those three disciplines like what separates them why uh, what makes them different from each other
1: yeah, well, half pipe is extremely technical. Um it requires absolute precision um because half pipe walls are the an average olympic half pipe is probably between 22 and 24 foot high. So to give you yourself a a sort of an idea that it's bigger than most houses. Um the and, and that that the transition if you were to jump too hard on the transition you would fall down the the transition that little bit further but that feels like jumping off a two-story building um just onto the flat ground so if you get it wrong it goes really wrong um but if you get it right it's it honestly it feels like you're floating on clouds um and i think that there's so many variables to half pipe uh in comparison to slope style where you're just calculating speed. The, the jump's the same, uh, the landing's the same, and you just make sure that you've got the right speed for that. Whereas in snowboarding, you've got to have the right speed and you have to have the the right takeoff um, every time you 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 go up in the air in half pipe. So um, I think that, I can't say that slopestyle and big air is easier at all, but I think, if you ask most snowboarders they would they would definitely say that half pipe is far more technical.
2: I now feel like I'm going to be watching the Winter Olympics like I know all of it now I can commentate. <laughs> Don't worry family <laughs> we can mute the TV I've got this thank you for that It's really good to learn obviously new things that's what this podcast is all about and speak to athletes like yourself but just going back to your start in in snowboarding basically started competing at age 10. And then I've got next became British champion at age 13. Now that's not normal, surely, because it's definitely not in swimming. It's like a slog. It's like I started at nine, you know, I just got my first title at 18. Whereas I was like reading the information, I had to read it like four times. I was like, wait, age 10, age 13. Is what was that like at 13 winning British champs?
1: Um I don't know it's very hard because see that point in I suppose my my career that that was kind of the start of the career, I would call it because I just enjoyed it every year. It was every winter I was snowboarding between the ages of sort of 10 and 13, whereas all of a sudden, as soon as I hit 13, uh, I went straight out to Canada, continued the season um, and that was that that was where I think everything really progressed. The the British Champs was just kind of like uh it although I went there to try to win, uh I don't think it really soaked in that much. It, it was almost like I I I, al- I always remember Salt Lake City games were, were just been half pipe had just been on, and that was when I was like, Oh my god, I want to get to the Olympics. Um, I want to be at that level. And I think what I was doing that that particular season was I was going straight out to uh, California to go compete in my first kind of international event, and all the Olympic medalists were competing in the same event, so I was like completely thrown in at the deep end uh, from the sort of British competitive scene to the complete international scene so it that was kind of like a the, the British championship's not I, I, I'm not going to demeanor it whatsoever because I was so happy to win but um, it, I think my focus was on the bigger picture at the time.
0: For someone so young that's such a mature perspective to have which is really really quite impressive and you mentioned uh, you know by the age of 13 you're traveling Canada, California. How what about schoolwork? Because I guess being a snow sport, snow is not always around in Britain. You probably had to travel to find the snow. So how much did that impact, I guess, education and balancing that sort of sport athlete lifestyle with schoolwork?
1: Yeah, so I, I, I suppose I'm quite lucky in a sense. Like I started snowboarding when I was in primary school. So my primary teachers actually spoke to, to the Bankry Academy and almost give them a, a like a little heads up that uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a snowboarder, I, I travel every now and then, I take time off. Um, and I think that helped because I was, on, I was basically on a mission that I didn't want anyone to sort of hold me back. So, and you know what? Banker Academy were absolutely brilliant. And they are with anyone that's got a sporting promise. Um, they, they don't want to be a barrier. So they, they arranged to with my teachers to sort of project uh, further into the future in their sort of classroom and get all this homework gathered for me. Uh, and then I used to travel away with it, uh, with all these books. Um, and I swear that's probably where most of the uh, the sort of baggage allowance uh, came from was paying for the the, the weight in books of homework. <laughs> so um yeah, and then I had some brilliant uh, teammates who also helped me. I had some mathematicians, had someone that spoke fluent French. Um, so it, it really helped me on the road.
2: And so following on from that then, I was just, I'd love to know what the trading split was like, for, well, what it is like for a snowboarder and how does that, obviously you fit that, your education around that, but how much of it is actually outside in the snow?
1: yeah it's a good question yeah yeah so we um typically you would if you were on like a long camp um let's say you were out there for a month you would you would stick to a fair structure of about four days on one day off and then you would do three days on and then one day off and you would stay with that as much as you could but if the the weather implications obviously played a huge part so if there was a guaranteed five days of sun, and then you saw that there was a storm coming in, you would just maximize your time and be um, basically training fairly smart across those five sunny days um, to make sure you really sort of, you really sort of made it most of that weather window. Because um, a lot of the times you are battling with the, the elements and things can go either windy or cloudy or snowy. Um, it's been too cold as well at times it's been about minus 40 in some places where we are and you just can't train in that
0: makes me kind of appreciate the heat of poolside
1: oh (laughs) I was gonna say you're so lucky
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love Ponds Forge (laughs) (laughs) oh
0: man so Kind of continuing on with the the training element, like I find it quite fascinating. I, I guess as a swimmer, like for us, it is predictable in a sense of we know exactly what time we need to be there, how long we're in the pool for, the breaks, and it is the same. So going the four days on, one day off, looking at the weather, do you have like a set amount of time? Like you know your training session for that day is going to last like two three hours or less, or is do you have days where you get more? maybe prep work in the gym rather than on the snow or it would just be kind of like what
1: would a typical like maybe two three days in a life of uh, a professional snowboarder would be yeah so I suppose um if you if you're sort of battling jet lag your days are normally fairly like easy to start with um but if we're there we're acclimatized already then your, your day would always be figuring things out to start with. So day number one is get out there, get a feel for the place. Uh, Let's say we're going in the half pipe, you get a feel for uh, what the shape is like and uh, acclimatise to the sort of altitude. And then I I suppose if you were comfortable that day, then you would start start actually introducing some of your your sort of, I would say, sort of base level tricks. Um, And then the next day, you would go in with this sort of confidence. So half pipes tend to keep their shape fairly well in, in good conditions. So you can trust it. It's all about trusting the half pipe. So you find that the next day, sometimes guys will drop in and they'll they'll pretty much be doing the competition run, first run of the day. Um, whereas other times it takes about sort of five, six runs before you can actually build up to that. Um, so I would say you probably average between um, between about six to 15 runs in a, in a day, um, 15 being uh, a very kind of long day, um, that's, that's quite a tiring day on the legs. So uh, six being you've done your job, you've done really well, you haven't fallen, uh, your coach tells you to go home.
2: Interestingly then, how does the coaching side work? like are they there all the time and you know I don't know where they watch from do they have like a secret tower that they're like over the trees, just watching you go down yeah. every time
1: well it's quite funny so coaches have all got their different points uh, where they coach from most of them are actually right at the bottom of the half bite and right in the middle run they'll they'll tell you obviously by your or whatever can tell roughly what timing you are on the lift laps as well so they'll know that it'll take you, let's say, 20 minutes to get back up to the top of the chairlift and everything involved. So they kind of know your schedule and and they'll have that with each athlete. So sometimes they'll be maybe... They've all got their different styles and I think a really good coach adapts the way he is with with each athlete individually. Um, Some people need pushed harder than others. Uh, some people just need left to their own device. Um, for me, normally, I always get that feeling like I always really want to impress my coach every day. Um, so I was always uh, trying to warm up super quick and get straight into it so that he was like, all right, cool, Ben, Like, let's go.
0: The question I get asked a lot, and possibly you as well, Lauren, when some of the younger athletes coming into it, because I feel there's always a generational shift nowadays we've got a lot of social media there's a lot of social pressures so the socialization side of things I think is really really key but for you as a a winter sport athlete you do have to travel an awful lot so for you socializing with your friends at home is obviously going to be very limited or very difficult so for you your sort of aspect and being on you know I guess teams they were kind of I'm assuming, you know, close friends for you, but um, it was just to kind of get a a feel for, you know, how did you balance the sort of social aspects as well as being a a sort of a student athlete?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was actually really hard. I think you were, especially as I sort of formed into a bit more of a serious athlete, I had to start uh, saying no to (laughs) these sort of social... (laughs) look at him here. Yeah, he's just staring at me with these puppy eyes yeah um i mean i've i found it it really hard at times i mean you you, you guys all been the same that when your friends at home are are off to a party, you had to make the decision and and know that you were going to your training uh maybe the next day and and, and <laughs> I'm gonna get rid of my dog oh you yeah, so. I find that making sure that you do make sure that you're not just focusing 100% on yourself. I think it, it it's also important to keep your friends around you. And obviously with your teammates, you see them all the time and your teammates understand the world of travel, but sometimes the friends back at home don't understand what goes on. So I I always found that I had like, different groups of friends in different parts of the world and none of them knew each other, but they all knew me type thing. Um, so it was nice to come home because it was back to normality. And then it was nice to go away because it was, it was obviously then with the sport. So I really felt like I got best of both worlds. I'm not sure if this was the same for for you guys, but um, it, it was nice when I was coming home to my best pals they don't always ask about snowboarding. They, they actually are just like, come on, Ben, let's go and play football or let's go, let's go to the pub. Um, and I'll get you a water. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I did find it important to socialize when I got home because I didn't want to lose my friends. It was, it was, one of those things. It's, um, you, your friends are important. Um, and especially afterwards, it's, it, it, it becomes a reality that you don't want to leave your sport with with no one there. So, um, yeah, it's very important keep 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 all your friends close.
2: <laughs> one
0: of the things that you mentioned as well, like I commented on your mindset as a thirteen year old, you know, taking on the you know Olympic medalists and just there, you know, you want to go in and impress your coach. I find the psychology side of being a snowboarder or just being in a winter Olympic sport in general, really, really fascinating. Because I guess the challenge of learning a new trick or a new skill, you know, takes time and patience and then being able to execute it. How important, I guess, for you, but also how important to the sport is the sort of psychological preparation? Um, Is there anything specifically that you do or does it just happen naturally? Um, or is that sort of part and parcel of being a snowboarder, you have that sort of innate feel for,
1: for the movement that you need to do? Yeah, no, that, that's a good question. Um, I think sports psychology is a huge part of any extreme sport. Whether the athlete actually goes to a sports psychologist uh, is, a, is maybe a different matter, but it, I, I think every single one of them would tell you, oh, yeah, no, like, I... I have to do this, uh, I have to, uh, I basically have to like uh, go through this procedure before I do anything like that, or if I'm trying a new trick, it has to be the most perfect morning, perfect weather. Um, so everyone's got different things, and they probably don't even realise it, but I think what you find with a lot of the extreme sports is they're quite chilled, laid-back kind of people because I think they need to be. They, they can't be uh, jumpy, they can't be uh, sort of on edge all the time. They uh, Everyone's almost got a bit of a screw loose uh, because it actually suits the sport so much so. Because we are, we're, we're like risking our limbs almost every day as a fear factor where I just did not want to try anything new again. And all these little kids were coming up and around me and they were all throwing themselves without question, fearless like they were when they were young. Um, and here I was starting to like build up this fear of trying to go upside down twice again. It, it, it was something that I had to sort of really work hard at. So uh, I think after a little while of working um, with a sports psychologist, it brought me back into that sort of good space again where I could unscrew the, the, the sort of screws in my head a little bit again.
2: <laughs> I can definitely understand why that would be an issue sometimes because I sometimes I didn't even want to swim backstroke and there's no death threats there. It is literally yeah. coming your back and look at the roof, Lauren. So I can understand um, why there might be some struggles around that for sure. I was, I'd like to know what competition day is like because... Having been a swimmer and being in that world, competition day can be, there can be a bit of animosity. There can be a bit of, you know, you can cut the tension with a knife on poolside and stuff like that. But then I've experienced, for example, um, going to watch the Ironman in Lanzarote where it's, yes, there's of course that level of competition and people wanting to beat each other. But there's also a huge level of just respect for everybody there doing it because it's one of those things that's like, yeah, this is actually really tough. So I'm wondering where it, where it sits um, in terms of that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, well, the, the, I think when you, on competition day, I think what happens is we all sort of gather that morning. It's always an early start as well. It's always like the sun's not quite up yet. So it's cold, really icy um and everyone sort of gathers up at the top and i think what we tend to get is about 20 30 minutes of practice before the event starts so that can sometimes sometimes it can be as little as two runs uh, sometimes you can maybe manage to squeeze four runs in um really depends what the the laps the lap time is um or whether you're hiking the half bite now what I tend to do a lot of the times is hike to the half pipe that was normally the thing that I did it It normally take you about sort of ten 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 minutes to sort of get right up to the top um and that is if you landed a run, you could almost like come out of the half pipe on the wall uh, It always takes a lot longer if you have a little fall and you and you end up at the bottom and you've gotta like climb up this really steep bit first before you get into the nice sort of gradient. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I find on competition day, everyone is super chilled at the top. Every, all the teams are talking, uh, you tend to find it's it, everyone does, everyone uplifts each other, uh, pats each other on the back, um, wishes each other luck. It's a really good sport. I would say, um, and I I would always admire like what other people had done. Um, if someone had thrown down a really good run. Um, you tend to find everyone corrugates around the scoreboard. So everyone's like looking what each other's getting. And yeah, I think it it's a good sport to be in, definitely. I think everyone lifts each other up.
0: It's actually quite refreshing to sort of see that. Cause I think in sport we we do congregate and support one another as such, but I feel in swimming it definitely is quite competitive in that you do want to beat the person next to you. So to hear yes. sport being that um, sort of uplifting to everybody and anybody is is actually really quite nice to hear. Um, did you, well, I've kind of got two questions. I'm quite curious. On competition day, you kind of mentioned everyone has this sort of set routine, you know, perfect mornings for some individuals and all that. Did you personally have any quirks or little things or rituals that you did? Um, I find athletes tend to like, as a swimmer I used to always spin my arms around four times for fly eight for back four for rest eight for free for me emulating 400 IM and that was just what I did and I always cracked my neck to the left if I didn't crack my neck to the left it it was that was it was kind of game over kind of so for me that was my personal quirk and little thing that I did before my race to settle me out do you personally have anything like that that kind of
1: yeah, yeah no I I definitely do so uh I had to put my right boot on before my left um and if I'd if I put my left boot on fully tied it I had to undo it and take it off and put my right back on again um so that was my my I, I don't know why I got it in my head but I'd read about um the Greeks used to apparently do that uh, about putting the right shoe on before the left and I, I, it just stuck in my head. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to put my right boot on then before my left. So that was one of my rituals. But that had to start off like basically in the car park when you were actually putting on your stuff um, before you're going up the hill. And I think my sort of second ritual was probably just clapping my hands before I dropped in. Um, that was the one thing. And I normally did a little bit of a, like an ollie, like a little jump just before I popped in. Um, and that was, I think that's kind of the, first, the the only rituals that I ever had that I always did. And I knew I did it because I, I needed to get them in because it, it just meant that game was on. Uh, so yeah, I can imagine in swimming though that you want to do the same thing every time um, whereas on on a like a re- really cold day where it's like blowing a huli and it's snowing and you're competing in that, sometimes you tr- you don't want to do these things. You just like, oh, just get me down. I want to get a hot chocolate. <laughs>
0: Oh, I love to use the phrase blowing a hoolie as well because I'm pretty sure there's going to be some people thinking what on earth does that mean? I'm (laughs) one of those people.
2: I heard it and I was like, yeah, these two are in their own language now.
1: (laughs) Sorry, I'll keep it minimal.
2: No, it's fine. It's good. good.
0: (laughs) No, it's all good. Um, So was there a particular trick that for you was like a go-to that you would always do or you're always striving to work on having it different each time? I guess, again, kind of referring back to swimmers, you know, we have the four strokes. <laughs> we always knew butterfly backs were freestyle, and it was just all about time getting quicker and quicker. For a sport like snowboarding, I guess it's all about, you know, is the tricks. It's the, is it how much air you get as well? Does that get included in the points? And yeah, yeah it's kind of, it's quite gymnastic based, I feel. Um, so... Yeah could you just describe a little bit more about I guess how the scoring system works and for you what your favorite trick was or your kind of go-to trick
1: would be Yeah um so yeah so the judges are looking for uh amplitude uh, they're looking for variety um so that means like your variety you've got four four rotations to basically spin on um there's actually a lot more than that uh but I'll not get into too technical but you they look for you to spin in all the directions uh, that are possible. Um, and then, yeah, amplitude um, and then consistency really um, to make sure like you're, it, for example, if you saw someone doing a 22 foot uh, first hit um, and then their second hit was 15 and their third hit was 10 foot, so they were getting smaller and smaller, they would dock you down on that, whereas they actually like to see an average height they like to see consistency all the way down. Um, and then there's obviously docking for hand touches, uh, bum drags uh, for basically not clean lines. Um, so you you need to keep like a clean edge. So you'll see quite a lot of this. You'll probably analyze it next time when you see it at this Olympics. But um, if you see someone that does a really spectacular run but they make it look easy then the judges will reward that so much more Um, and absolutely love it in a new trick that's never been done before which has basically scored you uh, I mean you've seen some of these uh, scores from Sean White uh, at the X Games where he gets a perfect score Um, it's because he's basically done a run that's never been done before um so they therefore they they tend to reward that they're like okay this is the best run that's ever been done um it, it's a it's a max score so it has happened um and i hope it does happen at this olympics because i think that there's some runs that are not quite put together just yet but you might see them put together at the olympics this time
2: wow i think i've been in trouble for bomb drags and butterfly to be honest so at least there's some <laughs> crossovers going on here. Anyway, Kill Dog. Hey. <laughs> I, um, I've, I read, or Hannah told me that this is your nickname. Could you please explain, Kill Dog, why your name is Kill Dog?
1: Yeah, so this is going back a while as well. Um, so we were in Switzerland one year, and two guys that I was with, uh, Tim Warwood, uh, who's a BBC presenter now, he uh, he was coming up with all these, so we just watched Top Gun um, and we were coming up with all these call signs for, for us uh, as a group. So everyone had their own call sign and uh, mine was uh, Kill Dog and it was one of those things that just, it started off on that trip and it just carried through to the next trip. And then after that, everyone started calling me Kill Dog um, and then even people that, I'd never met before, were like, oh, kill dog. <laughs> um, so, and you know what? I've not heard it in a long time, but funnily enough, one of my staff members, uh, I've got a little tub of protein at the gym that I use, and I saw this sticker on it and it said kill dog on it. And I was like, oh, no way, I've not seen this in years. Um, I was like, who's done this? So one of the staff boys was like, oh, I heard you're called kill dog. <laughs> So, funnily enough, that was just today as well.
2: Wow. And and my question to follow on from that was, you did go to two Olympics, 2010 and 2014, and this is going to be a big question here, but how was the Olympics?
1: You know what? It, absolutely amazing. Um, when you get to the Olympics, it's a, a really surreal experience the first time. Um, I think you you don't quite soak it all in. It's almost like you're still just pinching yourself uh, the whole trip. And I just remember almost forgetting that I was actually there to compete because there was this 24-hour free food um, and a free McDonald's. And there was all this free memorabilia that you kept getting from everyone. It's like, oh, it's so amazing. Um, And especially, I think, Obviously, when we were in Vancouver, the Canadians were just—it was just an amazing experience. Obviously, they're they're such like so into their winter sports, so it's a, a great like hosting nation. Um, and I just remember coming out of that absolutely buzzing. Um, so I, I think second time around, I managed to really focus on a little bit more of like what I was there to do. Um, but yeah, it, my, my experience from the both of them Olympics, uh, both Sochi and Vancouver, was the, we had really bad weather um, that really affected the half-pipe. So both them Olympics were actually, in terms of like conditions, were really, really bad. Um, so it was nice to see when it was Pyeongchang that they finally got perfect conditions for a perfect half-pipe. Um, it was cold enough. Um, And I hope that they have that in Beijing. I have heard it's really nice and cold where they are. So um, we'll hopefully get a good show.
0: I guess kind of touching on a little bit about the winter Olympics just going on. Who would you say were sort of top athletes to maybe look out for? So if we were to watch it, um, I guess in your sort of, in 2010 and 2014, you know, I think 2010, you were the only GB athlete for uh, the, the Winter Olympics. So I guess, who are the GB athletes that we should be keeping an eye on uh, coming into uh, the Beijing 2022 games?
1: Yeah, so Kirsty Muir, uh, freestyle skier. Uh, I, I really I don't want to add like pressure to her and she's probably not going to see this cause she'll try and maybe switch herself off to the world. But um, I really think she'll, and I hope uh, she gets herself a medal because I think she deserves it. She's a, a very strong push uh we've got Izzy Akin, uh James Woods, um and then Katie O'Mrod uh for snowboarding. Um she's in slope style as well. So um that we've got a really like strong team that are there, although it may not be as big as what we we put out to Pyeongchang. Um I think that the athletes that are there are real medal contenders. Um and that that's just on obviously in like the freestyle side of things um and Katie'll obviously be doing slopestyle and big air so two events and two chances um and I think yeah I don't I've seen some videos of like the other athletes like I've seen the figure skaters they look amazing um the bobslayers look great um so I, I really hope that this will be the biggest medal hall that, that Team GB have. Like, I'm sure everyone's kind of willing them on to to, to try and break the record. So um, I do think Team GB, they, they are getting stronger every Winter Olympics. And I know we've already got a really strong summer team. Um, but I think we're slowly getting there with the winter side. Um, might take a bit of time to catch up with the US, but uh, we'll get there. <laughs>
2: I think so. I mean, I've been watching the curling. I think we're already on track, so it's all going to be good. I know it is. And I always love it when it comes around because uh, it just kind of, it's not obviously televised enough, the sports individually, in between. So it's really good to see it, obviously, on TV.
1: Yeah. What,
2: was your, what would you say your biggest learnings from the Olympics were? Or if maybe not the Olympics, maybe some other competition that you did where you thought... Or it was kind of a turning point for you.
1: Um, well, funnily enough, so a lot of people say like, "What, what, what's the the best event that I've ever done?" Um, and it was actually three weeks prior to Vancouver Olympics. Uh, we were doing the Team GB holding camp out there, and uh, there was a World Cup in Calgary as well, and it, and it just so happened to be kind of. Um, I had staff, uh, kind of there with me, and I had Princess Anne as well. So she, she came up to watch, and uh, I just so happened to to put down my Olympic run. So this was me trying out my new run at the time, and uh, it got me into the finals. Um, and this was, it, it kind of happened every now and then. I got into the finals because it's quite, uh, it's quite tough. I, I had a tough career, but. Um, I managed to land my Olympic run in finals, which got me basically my first ever World Cup medal. Um, sorry, my dog's shaking. <laughs> I'm trying to stop him. He's obviously itchy. Um, so, and that was the the first ever uh, halfpipe medal um, for in a, in a World Cup for snowboarding. Um, so I was I was kind of happy to sort of break that trend uh, that would never. Never got medals uh, for the Team GB um, until that point. And that just set me on a complete high going into Vancouver. So that was probably the, the biggest and best event that I'd done.
0: I'm just making a wee note there, actually, because um, I, I love that. As you say, because a lot, I think sometimes in the summer sports, there is a lot of pressure and push for the medals. And, you know, even you mentioned there, I think Team GB is going to do an incredible job with the medals but your career has been just as successful regardless of whether you've had medals or not. And it's, and it's so refreshing to hear your own personal experiences within your sport. And you, as Lauren mentioned there, that was the question I was, had on the tip of my tongue and I just could not get (laughs) up about the learning curve. I was like, there was a reason why I was asking this question. Um, so you, you mentioned there, like your biggest learning curve coming into your uh, career. What about, as a youngster, if you could speak to yourself, uh, you know, after all the years of experience that you had, the little 10 year old 10-year-old you starting out, what advice would you give yourself? You know, would you change anything or would, um, yeah, what, what kind of key words would you kind of say to yourself, to 10 year old Ben?
1: Um, I think I would have probably told like my younger, younger self to push harder, quicker. Um, I think I, like, not, not that I regret anything because it kind of forged the way I, I went anyway, but um, I think I hesitated at the start. I didn't know if I actually wanted to do snowboarding until I was about 13. Um, that's when it really, it really kind of took off. And when I started at nine, um, I think if I could go back, I would, I would almost tell myself, you're going to get to the Olympics, but you could go, you could get to Turin. Um, and because I, I narrowly missed out on Turin. I, I was sort of five points short of qualifying. Um And it that, but that was what I, that completely fueled me to get to Vancouver. It made me so annoyed with myself that I hadn't completely pushed earlier. And I think I would just tell myself to, to, to basically get on with it a bit sooner. Um, stop, stop faffing around, uh trying to still play uh golf and tennis and uh trying to do all these other things, just get stick to snowboarding. Um but no, I can't I can't fully beat myself up. But I think that's one of the things that I would kind of tell myself, uh my younger self. Um, but other than that, I think I've escaped as many injuries uh, as I could. And there's obviously a few that I, I definitely couldn't escape, but uh, I would try and uh, pop up to every point before I dropped in, uh, before I was actually breaking bones, I would have stopped myself and just said, just think about it, Ben, just save yourself.
2: <laughs> I would have told Ben, don't worry about it. In, th- in three years, you're going to become British champ. It's fine. It's <laughs>
1: um
2: I'm going to bring it down a bit because I think it's important and we have spoke about things that have been tough already, but I think it's important for people to hear that it's not just all the highs, there are lows as well. And so if you wouldn't mind sharing, I would love to actually listen to maybe your one of your lowest points or your lowest point and was it due to injury or just something mental or anything like that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've got two, uh, I've probably got two low points. Um, the first one being actually after Russia was, uh, I, I, you've probably heard of like Olympic blues. Um, and I definitely had that. I, I, I was on such a downer after Russia. Um, I really wanted to perform better than I did. And I was very hard on myself. And at the time, my sister moved out to, she was working in Dubai and, um, I, I'd gone home and I was just like, okay, I'm just going to take a bit of time off. And I was on a proper downer and I, my sister phoned me and just said, Ben, get yourself over here, come and stay with me for a month. Um, and, and that, that really like, it was a good time, uh, to sort of think. And, and obviously when, Van, when Russia was over, um, that was sort of still in the middle of the peak of the season. <laughs> this is what he does. This is I, amazing.
2: Ignore him. This is getting clipped into the snippets. It has to. <laughs> <laughs> Normally it's it a cat that does that.
1: Yeah, I know. No, this is when I ignore him. He starts <laughs> to... he starts to, like, I can wear him as like a, a hot water bottle around <laughs> my neck. Um, but yeah, so he's obviously... Understanding that I'm talking about my low points, so he's trying to cheer me up. Um, my my second low point was uh, when I broke I broke my pelvis in uh, 2016. Now th- this was on the build up to to basically uh, trying to qualify for P Chang, and it put me out. I, I couldn't really walk. Sorry, <laughs> come on, <laughs> come on, down <clears throat> There we go. All right. <laughs> oh dear. Right. So back to the story. Um, so when I broke my pelvis, um, yeah, it it that put me on a bit of a downer as well. I couldn't walk for six weeks. Um, it, it put an end to that sort of year of training, but I kind of wanted to prove to myself then at that point that I needed to get back on my feet. I needed to get back competing as well. Um, so I I made it a mission to obviously get back snowboarding. And the the first event that I actually was recovered for was British Championships again. So um, I went back out to Switzerland where it was held and I managed to win. Um, And at that point there, I think uh, I'd already spoken to Anne Thompson that worked for BBC. And I'd told her if I win, then I would retire. So... I wanted to finish it on a high. And I think mentally it was one of those things that I had to sort of make that important decision that I'd really, really tried hard to come back from like my broken pelvis. uh, But I, I I couldn't see myself getting back to the Olympics. Uh, I had to sort of take that reality check. So that was a really hard point. Um, And when I won, Anna uh, and published the, the sort of article of me retiring and 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 that was it the decision was made so um I felt really good about that and I don't regret any bit of that now uh, I'm really happy I did that so that that fixed me um I think it made me sort of come home with a smile on my face that's
0: actually again really quite refreshing to hear because some athletes might not get the opportunity to have their way of finishing a sport the way that they'd like to sometimes it gets taken out of their hands and for you to feel satisfied that that was how you wanted to retire you know is it is really positive to hear and especially being able to come back with a smile on your face and still finish the sport that you love still enjoying it so how how's the transition been so what what were the steps once you retired going into I guess the next chapter in your career where where did that
1: take you so I think it, at that point, so when I'd gone out to British Champs before that trip, I actually uh, put like a, a deposit down on a on a unit, um, and it, this was open to open up like a little PT sort of coaching studio, and uh, <laughs> I, I think I got the news that day that I'd competed. Uh, that would I'd won the bid to to basically take on this unit, so uh, I I just put an offer in before before I left and got the news that that I'd got it. So it was um it was like a double win almost, um and that really put focus on the next chapter. L- literally, uh, it was all about trying to then get myself into sort of. This sort of business mode, which I'd never ever been in, um, and you got to obviously, when when you start your own business, you have just got to learn on the road. You can't, you, you don't know half of the stuff. Uh, no one teaches you any of that. So um, that that was sort of the next chapter. Then it was uh, it was all focused on starting a gym.
2: Did you have the idea to do that? Did you want to do that for a long time? Like, did you? Um, start thinking about that before you actually retired or is it something that happened like right oh gosh I need to get into gear now because there is a bit of a stigma or a misconception around uh, sometimes athletes feeling like if they start to think about their career afterwards it's they're not fully focused correctly on what they need to do now whereas actually it's a good thing to have an idea.
1: Oh definitely and I think it's, it, I don't think there's any shame in, in thinking about your future career because I think it's, it's important to get the right steps done. Uh, earlier, the better, really. Um, I mean, you're very lucky if your career takes you to a, to a point uh, sort of financially where you don't need to worry. Um, and, and I find a lot of people sometimes fall into this sort of roles naturally, uh, whereas other people have to literally get home and they are in the real world uh, where things are not done for you. Um, so like, like me, <laughs> so like all of us. So yeah, I, I find, I think it's trying to make important decisions. So when I was kind of on the road, this is a long time before I actually did my PT course um, and the Scottish Institute at the time, they, they were brilliant. They, 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 they kind of encouraged you to get on with the course and, and get some education done on the side venture. And I know obviously I left school uh, after the standard grades. Uh, I didn't go on to university at the time. So um, I always felt like there was just a little bit missing. I I just needed something to, to, to get me by and something to fall back on as such.
0: So I guess having an active lifestyle for you, being in sport, continuing sport, I guess, in a different sort of sense in your next chapter, was that always a plan? Um, did you feel that that was kind of that natural progression for you to kind of stick within sport? I guess the gym industry, it's sport in a sense. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you yeah.
0: now do quite a fair bit of CrossFit as well. Uh, so I do, do,
1: yeah. Yeah, so obviously as soon as competition sort of ended, uh, I didn't realise until about sort of three years later I was really missing that competitive sort of... Uh, I don't know that drive I I just had something missing so yeah I I sort of got introduced to to CrossFit and it kind of opened up my my world of how how kind of hard you could actually push the body uh, in a sense when there was no almost like no sport holding you back and not that not that snowboarding was holding me back but I only wanted to be fit for snowboarding. I didn't need to acquire a set of skills that were were needed elsewhere. I just wanted to be strong and healthy and fit for snowboarding to get me through a season. Now, when I started CrossFit, it felt like I'd lifted the lid. Uh, I could put on a little bit more weight. Uh, I didn't need to like watch myself because obviously when you're a lot of the snowboarders, you'll find are quite like agile and kind of light like cats. Whereas, uh, now I'm more like a a dog, I suppose. <laughs> so, but yeah, I went, my hometown's not had a gym, and it it didn't have a gym pretty much for my my, my whole kind of youth. I went to a, a local sports um, center, which had a really small room uh, with a couple of weights, and I always said to myself that if I retired from snowboarding, that I would start a gym in, in my, my own town. So that's where I think that, that's where the idea came from. Um, that's why I chose Bancree, um, it, because it was my hometown and I knew that it was something that was missing.
2: Do you still get on the snowboard? And if so, do you still do all the tricks and show off in front of everyone or do you just go, no, I'm just going to enjoy it and just, I don't know, what's that like now?
1: Oh, no, I definitely get carried away very easily. Uh, You could almost say that there's like, I don't know if it's the lack of fear or stupidity now, but um, if, if. Someone's built a jump down at the local golf course. Then it just it, it just I don't know some trigger goes off. I just have to do a little backflip, and then I can at least go home happy. But um, yeah, I funnily enough, over lockdown last time um, when the mountains were closed, we had so much snow uh, around us, and my neighbour bought a snowmobile, and he actually drove it down to the house. And uh, came and picked me up so we went snowboarding off in the in the fields um and he pulled me along and I mean it, it was the the best season I've had in a long time but uh I mean that's what good neighbors are for but um but yeah he uh he bought the snowmobile we enjoyed the the winter whilst it was here and then he went and sold it and and that was that it was um, so that's my last time I've been snowboarding, but I really am hoping to, to get up this year to Glen Um, That's if the snow arrives, it's still very warm.
0: I love the fact as well that snowboarding is still very much a part of you and who you are. And I guess sport teaches us a lot of things. You know, we learn a lot about ourselves. There's lots of life lessons along the way. Could you sum up how snowboarding's shaped your life? Like, Are there a lot of things from your career as a snowboarder now as uh, a gym owner and as a businessman? Are there any crossovers uh, between the two?
1: Absolutely. It's a good question. I think that sport and business are very comparable in a sense that if if you have committed to getting somewhere like the Olympics, you can treat that exact same drive in business that you can set your goals as a business um, and you can set out to help other people um, such as like the, the likes of your teammates and things. Cause I find that when I retired along with quite a few friends of mine, like my, my teammates, uh, a lot of the times it was kind of like, I, I, I used to get a lot of questions as to like, oh Ben, how how do how do you think I should go about this, or do you think this is a good idea? Um, so, I think the teammates have always that we've all kind of found our areas now, but there was always a lot of questions when we were thinking about retiring, and when we did retire, um, I think it it's taking a leap of faith almost all over again. Um, I mean, there's nothing scarier than uh, going on and literally listing your your business name on company's house and and suddenly paying tax and national insurance and paying your staff salaries but um yeah it all, all this stuff is always quite scary and it's kind of like how it was in snowboarding it was going on your first trip away is scary uh leaving your parents um it, you're kind of left to your own devices. It's it, Everything in sport can be scary like that.
2: My final question for you, Ben, I and mean, it's always good to ask the athletes that we have on because we learn so much from sport and we obviously hope to help the younger athletes coming through. One piece of advice, I'm sure you've been asked this question before, that you would give to a young athlete or a young snowboarder in particular, or whatever you would like to... Whatever answer you'd like
1: to give us, um, but just that one piece of advice. Well, I'll get, I'll pass on a piece of advice that I got, uh, and it's from a a guy called Christian Stevenson, an American. Uh, he's actually a chef now, um, and he just told me to go fast, take chances, and I think that going fast is uh, the, the reason for that being is. We are only young for a certain period of time, and I I think it's so important in your young years to to actually make sure you progress as fast as you can whilst you can, because things only get slower. Um, and I've noticed my my recovery rate is not quite the same as uh, what it used to be. And if you're going to be in sport, you need to be you need to be fairly young. I mean, there's very rare uh, sports out there that, that you can actually stay, stay in good shape in, into your sort of 40s to 70s, let's say. Um, we all have to be fairly young to, in, our, in our physical prime. Um, so I think it's making sure that people don't take their time. They actually do uh, try to achieve the goals as quickly and, and as fast as possible and take them chances uh, to get them as far into their sport as they possibly can.
0: Kind of like Rafa was agreeing with you in the background there.
1: <laughs> yeah, did you hear that?
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that's incredible. I mean, 19 years of being a snowboarder and many more years to come as you know a business owner and still attaching yourself to the back of a snowplow <laughs> on your snowboard. You know, probably well <laughs> into your 70s. I mean, you said that you know the sport is for the young, but I'd say the sport, you know, it can be for the, you know, you're, you're proving, I mean, not saying that you're old. I was going to say, Hannah, where are you going with it?
1: <laughs> no, I am old. <laughs> but can I can envision
0: that. you, like, until your 80s or 90s, still being on that snowboard, like, it's it's with you for life. Um, you know, as you say, yeah, maybe not as agile as the cat, but, um, yes. yeah, you still don't lose the love for it and the, the feel for it. It just might not be in the same sort of physical peak condition, but, doesn't mean
1: yeah. that you try. I'd, I'd like to think that uh, I'd be taking my grandkids snowboarding for the first time. So let's, let's hope.
2: I'm sure. I'm sure. And you can show off and all that kind of stuff and win everything. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, ben, honestly, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure listening to your story, chatting to you about your time in sport and all the things that you've learned. So from both of us, just a huge thank you.
1: No, thank you guys. Honestly, it is nice. Like I say, it's great to to get the opportunity to sort of reminisce in some old memories. So uh, thanks for asking the awesome questions.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode with Ben. It's been brilliant, as I said before. Um, We really appreciate you coming on. We have a new guest as well next week on next week's episode. So we look forward to you joining us then. But to finish off, thank you, Ben. And we will see you next week.